Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. In the world of public relations and media, the word optics is used to describe how an event or course of action is perceived by the public. This week, we've been offered some very salient lessons in optics. Upon the one-year anniversary of Russia's disastrous invasion of Ukraine, we saw images and video of the US President Joe Biden making a surprise visit to the capital of Ukraine as a physical statement of solidarity and support before heading to Poland a nation that was invaded by the USSR in 1939, to once again restate America's support for Ukraine against Russia. A day later, China's most senior diplomat posed for photographs with Russia's President Vladimir Putin. Shaking hands with him and sitting comfortably next to him in a chair, rather than at the end of a 13-foot table that Putin had insisted visiting leaders such as Emmanuel Macron sit at in his previous meetings. People might not remember what the start of the Ukraine war looked like, but everyone remembers the images from a meeting that happened just before the Russian tanks rolled in. It was the photos of Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin sitting next to each other at the Beijing Winter Olympics, and then standing together to issue this joint statement not long afterwards. Friendship between the two states has no limits. There are no forbidden areas of cooperation. After a year of Beijing refusing to condemn Russia's invasion and escalating accusations that the US was using Ukraine as a proxy to fight a war with Russia, Xi Jinping is due to announce his own plan to bring a peaceful solution for Russia's war on Ukraine today. It's also been announced Xi Jinping will travel to Moscow to meet with Vladimir Putin in April or May of this year. May just happens to be the month where there's a meeting of the G7 group of nations in the Japanese city of Hiroshima. Make of that what you will. The world has been watching a new kind of hybrid war play out, a military war, an information war, a war for the narrative. Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping have boasted of their friendship with no limits, but the reality is there are limits. And these past 12 months have significantly changed the relationship between China and Russia. It's also fundamentally changed China's relationship with the nations of the European Union. And that's what we're going to talk about in this week's episode of Inside China. Hello, my name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong and formerly host of the China Geopolitics podcast. Stepping in this week to pick up the conversation with my colleagues on how the biggest geopolitical crisis of this decade is changing China's relationship with the world. Russia's invasion of Ukraine was supposed to be fast and decisive, a blitzkrieg to borrow a term from a previous European war. But what it's revealed is an historic alliance among European nations to isolate and punish Russia economically, and a grim resolve to bear the cost of soaring energy prices. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has been greeted with standing ovations in the US Congress, the British Parliament, the European Parliament, and the United Nations General Assembly and it's left Vladimir Putin alone, isolated, with one country willing to stand by him. 
This is what he had to say this week to China's highest-ranked diplomat, Wang Yi, who had come to Moscow. International relations are difficult today, and they didn't get better after the collapse of the bipolar system. In fact, they became more dangerous. In this regard, the cooperation on the international arena between the People's Republic of China and the Russian Federation, as we have repeatedly stressed, is very important for the stabilization of the international situation. And this is what Wang Yi had to say in response. The current international situation is indeed grim and complex. But Sino-Russia relations have withstood the test of the international situation and remained mature, tenacious, and stable. Although crises and chaos often appear in front of us, there are opportunities in crises. And crises can be turned into opportunities. As I record these words, we're waiting to hear publicly from Xi Jinping. As I've mentioned, he's promised to deliver his own peace plan to end this ruinous war. Ukraine's President Zelensky is quoted this morning as saying he's also very keen to hear this plan. He's been calling for a meeting with Xi Jinping since early January this year without response. But it's not like the two have never spoken together on the phone. It was July of 2021 when Zelensky and Xi Jinping had a phone call as requested by the Ukrainian president, according to China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. This is how China's official readout of that phone call begins. Xi Jinping stressed that ever since China and Ukraine established their strategic partnership 10 years ago, bilateral ties have maintained a healthy and stable development, and bilateral cooperation in various areas has achieved positive results, bringing tangible benefits to the people of the two countries. Now, there's every chance something significant will be announced after we publish this episode on Friday afternoon, Hong Kong time. So as ever, a reminder to keep up to date with the latest developments at scmp.com. But right now, you're going to hear from my colleagues helping to shine some light on the nuance surrounding China's influence and impact on this war. Let me start with Xi Jiangtao. He's our resident expert on all matters diplomatic in Beijing. Xi Jinping, great to see you. Uh, can we start with Wang Yi's visit to Moscow? What do you think was more significant, the things that Wang Yi had to say or the visuals of him shaking hands and sitting so close to Vladimir Putin? Thanks, Jared, for having me again. Uh, I think visuals and optics are important. Both Wang Yi and Putin are veterans in this regard. We saw from the video clips released by both sides that Putin initially wanted to give Wang Yi a hug. But the pair ended up with a handshake. And Chinese analysts also highlighted the fact that Wang Yi was allowed to sit closer to Putin compared to other leaders, such as Macron. But I think what they said, and in this context, what they did not say matters more. Well, officially, Wang was in Moscow to promote China's peace proposal, which would be unveiled Friday. He's primarily tasked with making preparations for Xi Jinping's state visit this spring to Moscow. But it's interesting that official Chinese readout did not mention Putin's opening remarks about how he's expecting Xi's visit, which the two leaders had agreed last year, and uh, how he and Xi would implement plans for personal meetings that would give uh, an, an additional impetus to China-Russia relations. Now, this visit was timed almost to the day of the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I'm interested in comparing what was said between Wang Yi and Putin this week, 
with the meeting between Xi Jinping and Putin at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization in September last year, because that was where Xi expressed his concerns to Putin over the war, whereas Wang Yi vowed China will, and I'll quote here, continuously deepen our comprehensive strategic partnership. What do you make of that? I think you're right. Back in September in Uzbekistan, Putin said Xi Jinping raised questions and concern about Russia's war against Ukraine. But I don't think China's stance on the war has changed much since then, especially after Russian troops' repeated setbacks in battlefields and NATO's significant moves to arm Ukraine with tanks and other heavy weapons. While both sides boasted about their rock-solid relations and vowed to consolidate their partnership and stand up for each other's national interests, defying strong opposition from the U.S. and European countries. We have yet to see tangible results coming out of the meeting on whether and how China would help with Putin's war against Ukraine. Actually, the Ukraine issue was mentioned briefly only towards the end of the Chinese readout, which said Wang and Putin had an in-depth exchange of views on the Ukraine issue. In diplomatic language, it probably meant uh, they had a lengthy discussion on this issue, but could not agree much. This is striking, but not unexpected. Well, let me just change focus, so to speak, and dare I say, the person who tried to steal the spotlight from this meeting between Wang Yi and Vladimir Putin, and that is US President Joe Biden, his surprise visit to Kiev this week and his face-to-face meeting with Zelensky. How was that viewed in Beijing? Was there a feeling he upstaged Wang Yi's visit to Moscow? I think so. China's always believed that the US is plotting against China, trying every possible means to discredit Chinese system and Chinese leaders, and showing China in a negative light. It's not necessarily true, but it has underlined a lack of strategic trust between the two powers, which is probably one of the biggest reasons for a lot of problems between the two sides. Well, let me turn to the two analysis pieces you've just published recently on SEMP.com. They've really indicated the challenge, if not the crossroads for China's foreign policy, you know, 12 months into this war. Just a couple of weeks ago, you called it a moment of reckoning about whether China upgrades its ties to Russia. What did the meetings and the speeches of the last few days indicate to you about what's going to come next? There's such huge discussion from the West about whether China will escalate to military support. But what are you hearing about this? I think Biden's visit to Kiev and his framing of the Ukraine crisis as a battle between democracies and authoritarianism has deepened China's dilemma on Ukraine. For China, Russia is one of the last major power allies, and it cannot afford to lose Russia's support in its long-term struggle with the US-led West. It means China does not want to see Putin's complete defeat in the war, or even the collapse of the Putin regime. That's probably why Xi Jinping wants to visit Russia now. Otherwise, it's hard to explain why China wants to incriminate itself at this extremely sensitive time to warm up to Russia. Apparently, Russia needs China more than Beijing needs Moscow at the moment. It will be in China's interest to see the US and European powers to get distracted and bogged down on Ukraine. And it would be preferable for Beijing to have a lose-lose scenario in the Ukraine war, in which both Russia and the US are weakened in the end. But I think China is also worried about Putin's threats to escalate the war and its nuclear brinksmanship. 
China's concern about being dragged into the war directly. Its political and economic support for Russia has already had reputational damage to its global image and its relations with Europe and other countries. Let me pick up on something you said just a couple of minutes ago there, Jiang Tiawen. You said that Putin made these comments at the beginning of his meeting with Wang Yi, really owning the prospect of Xi Jinping coming to visit him in Moscow. Russia's already used Wang Yi's visit as proof that China is supporting its war in Ukraine. Meanwhile, you've got Zelensky warning in two separate interviews this week that there will be a world war if China chooses to side with Russia. So what are you hearing about the kind of choice that China's facing here? I think that's the biggest question on everyone's mind at the moment. But uh, I haven't really heard much uh, on this because uh, I think you understand these days it's getting increasingly hard to get critical information about how decisions are being made at the top in China. But there are a lot of discussions and debates among Chinese people, especially among think tanks and uh, academics and intellectuals. Uh, Most people are having a hard time, including in China, to understand what Beijing has been doing and how those decisions are being made. While people are generally opposed to Russia's invasion, I think some people are worried about the specter of a nuclear escalation and even World War III, as uh, Zelensky has warned. I've heard some people, they argue that uh, in the event of World War, although China is opposed to the aggression itself, China may have to stand with Russia because it's a war between Russia and the West. With the prospect of this war escalating to bring in other countries and then having China siding with Russia because it's been framed as a war against the West, sounds terrifying, frankly. And as a child of the 1980s, having spent you know a whole decade worrying about old men in the US and the USSR firing nukes at each other, uh, it is a, a terrifying prospect. It's, as they say in diplomatic media, where is the off-ramp? For this, while we look at Wang Yi being photographed with Vladimir Putin in Moscow, meanwhile, China's foreign minister, Qin Gang, is making statements about the Ukraine war in Beijing this week. He was quoted as saying, We will continue to promote peace talks, provide Chinese wisdom for the political settlement of the Ukraine crisis, and work with the international community to promote dialogue and consultation to address the concerns of all parties and seek common security. Zheng Tiao, what does this actually mean? Is there any substance to the words of Qin Gang this week? There may be, because uh, basically it's an idea put forward by President Xi Jinping himself. And uh, I think uh, as a new foreign minister handpicked by Xi Jinping, it's uh, Qin Gang's task to substantiate the idea and to promote the idea around the world. I think it's understandable for, for Chinese leaders to feel uh, increasingly insecure, especially after in the wake of the Ukraine war, because more countries, they are relying on the US for, for security. So it will be hard for China to rally support for its uh, global security initiative. So basically, what China wants is an alternative version of global security, which is led by China and uh, like-minded countries uh, such as Russia, Iran, and North Korea. I don't know whether it's a, it's a good idea to, to put, it, uh, put forward such an idea at, at this time, because given China's economic clout, it would be more appealing for China to propose uh, trade investment programs than security programs led by China. 
and I guess in a sense there, Zheng Tao, if we look at the evidence, the US is very, very good at sending weapons and rockets, and China's very good at sending infrastructure and engineers, building railways, you know, the Belt and Road Project, that seems to be maybe the alternative that they're trying to push. But can I finish with a somewhat deeper question about how this war has changed China's relationship with Russia? You know, Chinese businesses have moved into the vacuum left by Western companies in Russia. China's now buying huge amounts of oil from Russia. Russia's now trading in the yuan instead of the US dollar. Is there a sense this war has, dare I say, subjugated Russia as the junior partner in the relationship with China? I think it would be great for China to see if Russia is reduced after the war to become a junior partner, because uh, it's been true for decades or even centuries that Russia has been a big brother to China. While it's worrying to see China choose to edge closer to Russia, I have to say, it would be naive to believe that Beijing and Moscow are natural allies that see eye to eye on most of the issues, especially those important national interest uh, issues. Their alignment is more like, to me, a marriage of uh, convenience due to the fact that they share a common enemy, which is too strong for them to handle single-handedly. And uh, I'll have to recommend an article, a uh, recent article by a leading uh, Russia expert, from Fudan University, Professor Feng Yujun. And uh, he did a great analysis of where China-Russia relations are, especially on the mindset, how Chinese sees uh, Russia today. And just like you asked uh, just now, although China is much more stronger economically than Russia today, but uh, deep down, there's a deep sense of uh, inferiority among the Chinese people. Chinese officials and uh, intellectuals towards Russia. And also he, he pointed out uh, some interesting facts because uh, although Beijing wants to see Russia weakened by the war, but from Russian perspective, it's difficult for them to accept the fact that the, uh, China is rising and China uh, becomes a stronger partner in their relationship. And also he, he, he said something about uh, the symmetry in diplomatic and tactical capabilities be between the two countries. Basically, I think what he meant is uh, China has been manipulated, has been used by Russia and Soviet Union over the years in the past, including the Korean War. So that's why I think it's difficult for Professor Feng and other Chinese academics to believe that Putin and his Russia are sincerely forging this sort of uh, partnership with China an equal footing, although Russia is uh, much weaker than before. And also, I think it's interesting for Professor Feng to point out the imbalance between costs and benefits when it comes to China's uh, decision to partner with Russia and propose the sort of no-limits partnership. He said that the China-US-Russia triangle will always benefit the weakest party the most. In the 1970s, when China was the weakest, China benefited uh, the most from its uh, uh, alignment with the U.S. to counterbalance the Soviet Union. But now Russia is the weakest, so uh, Putin stands to benefit the most from uh, China's rivalry with the U.S. And when you say that, Zheng Tao, I can't help but remember that you know, for many members of the CCP, it's American colleges where they want to send their children. And we look at history, it was you know, science and technology from the U.S. that helped China 
achieve its you know modern miracle of rising so many people out of poverty, but it's from Russia that China got its political system. So can the Middle Kingdom find the middle way in this? I don't think we're going to find out this Friday, but we're definitely going to see how things play out. Thank you so much for your time. It's great to see you here. Thank you, Jared. So let me take you back one day before Wang Yi's visit to the Kremlin. On the other side of the world, in Beijing, China's Foreign Minister Qin Gang had this to say. We urge certain countries to immediately stop fueling the fire, stop shifting blame to China, and stop hyping up Ukraine today, Taiwan tomorrow. But this phrase, Ukraine today, Taiwan tomorrow, isn't just popular in the Western narrative. It's also made the rounds on Chinese social media, specifically Weibo, China's version of Twitter. Some Weibo users have been making memes comparing Ukraine to Taiwan. There's an image of two pigs. One of them is called Taiwan, and it's watching another pig called Ukraine being slaughtered. Another Weibo user posted this. I resolutely support the Russian military action. This is the evil result of the Ukraine following the Yankees. We should seize the opportunity to liberate Taiwan and to recover the Diaoyun Islands. Apart from that, though, what do Chinese social media users think of the war in Ukraine? The independent news site What's on Weibo found that Weibo users can be roughly separated into three groups. The first group are those who support Russia, mainly from an anti-American perspective. Some people are bitterly bashing Russia while self-righteously preaching against the war. Of course, it is correct to be anti-war, and everyone should defend world peace. But you should ask them, were you also anti-war when the U.S. invaded Iran, Iraq, Panama, Libya, Yugoslavia, or Afghanistan? If you're anti-war, but not anti-American, you're up to no good. The second group are those who joke about Russia's prolonged war in Ukraine. These people aren't necessarily anti-Russian or pro-Ukrainian. They just don't have confidence in Russia's military power. The soldiers have no morale. The country has no money, and their equipment technology lags behind NATO. They're so disappointing. Some Weibo users even came up with a nickname for Russia, since the Chinese word for Russia sounds the same as the word for goose. Who thought the weak goose was so weak? And there's the third group, those who don't pick sides, but just want the war to end, without China getting involved. The Russia-Ukraine conflict is not some entertainment variety show. I've been constantly focusing on the Ukraine war that I can't concentrate on my work. Cherish the moment. Cherish peace. The news apps keep sending me push notifications on the Russia-Ukraine situation. I just hope these two countries can quickly reach a peace agreement. There's a diversity of opinions among the public, but in Chinese state media, the narrative is much more homogenous. Chinese state media doesn't refer to the war as a war. Instead, they echo Moscow's propaganda that it's a special military operation. And as Putin has done, Chinese state media also frames the war by blaming it on the US and the eastward expansion of NATO. On Weibo, the Chinese state propaganda tabloid Global Times started the hashtags Putin reiterates that Ukraine provoked the war and Putin says the West started the war. One of these posts had over 400 replies, but most of them had been censored. Over the past 12 months, I've had the pleasure of presenting the China Geopolitics podcast, and as part of that series, I've spoken many times with Finbar Birmingham about the Ukraine war and how it's changed Europe's relationship with China. Finbar, welcome back. Hello, Jared. Finbar, can I just start with asking you a question about optics? What was the response 
from EU diplomats and in the circles you move in about seeing Wang Yi's meeting with Vladimir Putin. No 13-foot table, warm handshakes. How did that play out in Europe? Well, I don't think there was that much surprise. Um, the, the visit was well telegraphed. Uh, there was, I guess, uh, people understood that he was going to, to Russia after he'd been in Europe. That said, it didn't go down very well. You know, it, it sort of flies in the face. This is the view of multiple diplomats and officials I've been in touch with this week. It flies in the face of what China describes as its neutrality on the issue. You know, the the cosy images of of Wang with Putin on the eve of the anniversary, while don't forget uh, US President Joe Biden was uh, shaking hands with Vladimir Zelensky in Kiev. The Europeans have been pushing um, for Xi Jinping to speak with Zelensky since the very outbreak of this war. And that hasn't happened. Um, these appeals have fallen on deaf ears. It's been raised time and again, and there's been no response. Of course, Wang did meet with the Ukrainian foreign minister in, in Munich last week. So it's not as if there's been no contact, but there certainly hasn't been very top level contact. But yeah, it's the optics aren't great. They contrast in the European eyes and the European mind very negatively with the images of of Biden um, speaking in, and walking the streets of, of Kiev. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's not gone unnoticed here. It has reaffirmed the view uh, that's very common in Europe that China is not a neutral party in this war. You know, we, we heard Ursula von der Leyen talk in Munich after Wang Yi's speech when she was asked what she would like to see from a Chinese peace proposal. She basically said, well, look, we just want to see China stop backing Russia on this, which is what we see so far. The Chinese actions speak speak louder than their words. They're, you know, they're not doing anything to stop this and they're sort of um, closer than ever with, with Russia. So I think these images of, of Wang Yi in, in the Kremlin will not really change those views. Can we just look at the respective European diplomacy of the US and China over the past few days? And I'm wondering what this can tell us. Let me recap. Wang Yi goes to Italy, Germany, France, and then to Hungary to meet with Viktor Orban before traveling to Moscow to meet with Putin. Joe Biden goes to Kiev, meets with Zelensky, then addresses a crowd in Poland, then attends a roundtable meeting with the leaders of Bulgaria, Estonia, Hungary, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic. And minutes before we started this recording... I see one of your tweets reporting the Albanian Prime Minister sees no economic benefits from China's 14 plus one grouping. How much political capital, diplomatic capital, has China lost in Europe these past 12 months with its refusal to condemn Putin's war? I think probably quite a lot, uh, although it's, it's, it's a bit more complicated than that. In a sense, everything has changed in the Europe China relationship over the past 12 months since the invasion and largely because of China's refusal to condemn Russia of you know and we as you've said it's it's very close ties to Russia which have have been not very well received here in in Brussels and in many European capitals but at, at the same time also nothing has changed in terms of direct policy and we can get into that a little bit later but Certainly over the past 12 months, attitudes in Europe have hardened towards China. Uh, There's a lot more suspicion um, of China and of authoritarian governments in in general. You know, you hear a lot of conversations about the need to strengthen democracies, the need to bolster supply chains, not be reliant on China for crucial goods. And in that sense, as in in other uh, senses, it's 
the war and, and China's positioning on the war has accelerated a lot of trends that were, were pre-existing, such as the post-COVID scramble to, to be less reliant on a single source for, for key goods, critical minerals, critical medical goods, things like that, technology. But I think that in Europe, there has been a willingness to diplomatically engage with China, particularly since the reopening of the Chinese economy. We've seen a bit of a scramble from from European leaders and politicians to go to Beijing. We've had two visits so far, Michel, Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, and Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor. We'll see more later this year, Joseph Borrell, Emmanuel Macron, Giorgio Maloney. That I think was a bit of a surprise because a year ago, and maybe just after the invasion, things really hit a low point. Um, you know, I remember the time of the EU-China summit. The Europeans were kind of uh, outraged at China's stance. Um, after the summit on April 1st, Joseph Borrell, who's the top diplomat for the European Union, described it as a dialogue of the deaf. You know, he, they were annoyed that the Chinese were not listening to their points on Ukraine. They were sort of glossing over their concerns. They were saying this has nothing to do with us. In, in turn, the Chinese were getting upset at the Europeans' constant focus on China's relationship with Russia, the constant mentioning at every possible forum of the No Limits Partnership agreed between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin just weeks before the invasion. You know, when I interviewed the Chinese ambassador to the European Union in December, he talked about how he was slightly frustrated at the fact that even 10 months into the war, the Europeans kept talking about this No Limits Partnership. Now, we've seen this week that Wang Yi's gone to Moscow, as you said, and has uh, sort of drilled down on this. Uh, it seems as though the you know, that the, the relationship remains as close as ever. And that's something that I've discussed with European officials this week and diplomats. And it's very much not gone unnoticed that, uh, you know, despite the, the sort of frustrations of Chinese officials and diplomats are having to explain this, they're not doing anything to change it. Certainly they're doubling down on it. Anyway, I think at that point, we you know, I, I was one of those who thought that there was going to be a sort of irrevocable change in the Europe-China relationship. But we've seen that it has ebbed and flowed a little bit in recent months as the European economy has suffered and as the Chinese economy has reopened. As I said, we've seen that flurry of re-engagement, particularly in, in Western Europe, a willingness to give the Chinese an audience when it comes to discussing their potential peace plan. Uh, you know, Macron and, and the, in, in, the, in the statements from the Elise, the French presidency, and from the Italian foreign ministry last week, there was seemed to be an openness to, to hear China out on this. How much of that will bear fruit, I think, will depend on, on what the Chinese are sort of pitching. Based on Wang Yi's speech in Munich last week, it seems as though it's certainly going to suggest that Russia's security concerns have to be considered, which is a, an absolute no-go in Western European capitals. So that's a bit of an elongated answer, but I, I do think that it's been a bit of a journey. It hasn't just been a sort of black and white as they've fallen out and they've fallen out for good. Suspicions are higher, tensions are, are, are sort of constant. And the, the war has overshadowed everything. You know, it, we, we see that at every single meeting where the Europeans are pressing the Chinese on this. 
So as I said at the top, I think everything's changed, but we've seen that sort of diplomacy continues. Unlike, I guess, with the United States, there is more willingness here in Europe to uh, engage with the Chinese on these issues. But yeah, it's not going to go away. We've seen that the war is is grinding on. Uh, there's no sign of an end in sight. So I think that's the way it's going to be for the foreseeable future. I guess ever since we saw Xi Jinping appear at the G20, go on something of a charm offensive, Justin Trudeau excused. We're seeing reports of Chin Gung working the phones, really working the diplomacy across nations on this side of the world. And Wang Yi is clearly on a whistle-stop tour across Europe, trying to shore up diplomatic relations on that side of the world. And everything seems to be sort of coming down to this one moment where we're going to have Xi Jinping make his speech and give his plan for peace. We've seen just a couple of days ago the Global Security Initiative released from Beijing, its ideas for how to create a better world without the US in charge. Have you heard anything back from EU diplomats about this Global Security Initiative? Not really. I mean, it, I don't think it's necessarily resonated very strongly just yet. Everybody's very focused on what's actually happening in, in Ukraine this week. They were very uh, captivated watching the footage of Wang Yi with Putin yesterday on Wednesday. Um, I think one point that's really worth making that has been a definite trend over the last year is, and something that, that a lot of officials in Europe get very fed up with, is this constant focus on the United States from the Chinese. There certainly is a sense that at every opportunity, the and we saw this with Wang Yi's speech in Munich last week, um, the Chinese are are laying the blame for everything that's wrong in, in, in the world at the feet of the United States. The war is is the US's fault. It's NATO's fault. I mean, these are these are common talking points for Chinese officials and diplomats, and they very much echo those of the Kremlin. That's not something that's been lost in, in Europe. Um, it's something they are quite tired of. Um, and I know from speaking to some some Chinese academics as well that certainly there's a view there that Europe has become closer to the United States. They worry about the dilution of what's known as Europe's strategic autonomy on issues like Taiwan and so on. So what you're seeing is that the, the Chinese are, are becoming more and more convinced that the United States is behind every negative element in the EU-China relationship. And in, in Europe, there's, there's a kind of frustration at that viewpoint because there's a sense here that um, people have come to their own conclusions on, on many issues. There's, there's a sense that, uh, particularly on the war, that this is a Russian war of aggression that has nothing to do with NATO's supposed eastward expansion, that Russia has invaded a sovereign nation in Ukraine, and, you know, there was an opinion poll this week that, that kind of summed up some of the differences in how things are viewed. It was by the European Council on Foreign Relations. This was a public opinion poll. It showed that Chinese people were were almost aligned with, with Russians and Indians and, and, and Turks, non-Western, I guess you could say. I'm not sure where Turkey falls on that spectrum, but in their views of, how, of, of whose fault the war is and, and how it should be solved. The reason why the, the EU and the US are backing Ukraine, according to citizens from those four countries, is because they want to maintain the Western hegemony. They would prefer to see the war end 
immediately if possible, even if it means Ukraine ceding significant territory to Russia. And that sort of stuff is anathema to European officials, European leaders who very much have adopted the stance of Putin must be defeated at all costs. You know, Putin cannot come away with it from this with a sort of um, any sort of a win. You know, this opinion poll really summed up for me the differences at a national level as well. That seems to be what we might see in the proposal from from Beijing. At least that's the suspicion here in Europe. So I don't think that there's been a great level of discussion yet about China's um, global security initiative. There will be uh, a lot of eyeballs and a lot of ears listening out for his supposed speech this week. So let's see what's in there. If you're like us here in Hong Kong, I guess you'd be waiting expectantly to see what Xi Jinping has to say with his peace proposal for Ukraine and Russia. And as you've suggested, the idea that Ukraine would just give up some territories in exchange for peace is anathema. It'll be interesting to see what comes next. We'll be looking for your reports and be following you on Twitter as always. Finbar Birmingham, thanks very much. Thanks, Jared. That's all for this week's Inside China, but it's just a fraction of the reporting and analysis of China's relationship with Russia and Ukraine that's being published on SEMP.com this week. We've got an in-depth series of stories looking at how the economic relationship has changed, how China's military is learning lessons, and of course, how the conversation around Taiwan has changed for you to take the deep dive and read. And as every chance, we'll be making a follow-up to this episode with more from our colleagues in Beijing, New York, Brussels, and of course, here in Hong Kong. Follow our news updates on scmp.com. Follow us on Twitter at SCMP News. My name's Jared Watt. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.